My name is Adam. If we haven't met, it's great to be with you today. I'm part of the team here at Oasis Church. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please uh, keep them open there to Acts chapter 16. That's where we're going to be uh, spending our time together this morning. Now, I want to begin by asking you if you can tell me what the following things have in common. What do the following things have in common? Coriander, chili, rare steak, heavy metal music, scary movies, pineapple on pizza, blue cheese, Brussels sprouts, Vegemite. What do these things have in common? We could say about all of them, they're not for everyone. Not everyone likes them. Not everyone is okay with them. Some people love them, but others do not. Now, I've got to admit, I don't understand why pineapple on pizza is controversial. It's obviously delicious. It obviously belongs on pizza. Now, whatever you think about pineapple on pizza, there are lots of things in life that we could say they're not for everyone. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what about Christianity? What about the message of the gospel? Is it good news for everyone? Is it a message for everyone? Of course, if you're a Christian, you'll instinctively answer yes. The, the, the gospel, the good news about what God has done for us in Jesus, it's good news for everyone. It's a message for all. But I wonder if there is a person in your life, maybe it's a friend or a family member, um, a sibling, a, a parent, a child, maybe it's a colleague, and when you think about them, you, you think to yourself, I don't think they'll ever become a Christian. I can't see them ever putting their trust in Jesus. They're too apathetic, they're too antagonistic, they're too comfortable. I can't see them ever trusting Jesus. See, often we'll say with our lips, yes, that the gospel is good news for everyone, but then we might think in our hearts, except maybe for them. And today, we're going to look at a story from the Bible which is going to challenge this idea. We're going to be introduced to three very different people from very different backgrounds with very little or no interest in Jesus whatsoever. And they all hear the gospel and they all put their trust in Jesus. Now, as I've already mentioned, uh, and as you've heard, we're diving back into the book of Acts this term. This is going to be part three in our three-part series through the whole book of Acts. Back in 2021, we looked at chapters 1 to 7. Last year, we looked at chapters 8 to 15. And this term, we'll be looking at chapters 16 to 28, which is the rest of the book. Now, if you watch a TV show and you start a new season, they'll generally give you a recap of the previous season before you get started. So let me give you a quick recap of what we've learned in the book of Acts so far. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. The first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the four Gospels. And they tell us about what Jesus said and did, about his life and his ministry. And they all end with Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the book of Acts tells us what happened next. 
What happened after Jesus' resurrection and his return to heaven? Acts, in other words, shows us how Jesus began to work in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit through the witness of his people. In fact, here's how the book of Acts begins. Before Jesus returns to heaven, this is what he says to his disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what the book of Acts is all about, the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is what we've seen so far in the first 15 chapters. We've seen the gospel go from Jerusalem, which is where it begins, out into the surrounding countryside of Judea and Samaria. But it's now going to go further. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. And the person who's really going to be the main one to bring it to the ends of the earth is a man named Paul. Paul is dramatically converted in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. And after that, he begins to travel and preach and plant churches. These journeys that he makes, they become known as Paul's missionary journeys. And on these journeys, lots of people become Christians. Lots of Gentiles, non-Jews, become Christians. And this is wonderful, but it causes some issues for the early church. And it all leads to this key moment in Acts chapter 15. There's this special council that is convened in Jerusalem. Funnily enough, it's called the Jerusalem Council. Creative name. And the key question on the table at this council is, do these Gentile converts, these non-Jews, do they need to submit to Jewish practices in order to become part of the church? For example, do they need to be circumcised to become part of the church? Now, men, you'll be grateful to know that the, res the resounding answer of the council was no. These Gentiles do not need to submit to Jewish practices to become part of the church. And this decision kind of opens the door for the gospel to go even wider, to spread even further to the ends of the earth. And this is what we see happening in Acts 16 to 28, the spread of the gospel into Europe and beyond. And the question really at the heart of these chapters is, as the gospel, the message about Jesus, goes into unfamiliar territory, as it goes into uncharted waters, will it be welcomed? Will it be accepted? Will it find a receptive audience? And this is why I think Luke, the author of the book of Acts, begins this section the way that he does, with three conversion stories with three very different people from very different backgrounds all coming to put their trust in Jesus. And Luke is showing us right up front that the message about Jesus is for everyone, that the gospel is good news for all. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at these three conversion stories, these three different people that come to Christ, and we're going to see what we can learn from it today. So let's begin with story number one, the successful businesswoman. See, the Apostle Paul and his companions, they travel from Troas in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They go across the Aegean Sea, and they arrive in Macedonia. And they go to the city of Philippi. They're now on mainland Europe. Now, whenever the Apostle Paul arrived in a new city, he would always first go to the synagogue the place of worship for Jewish people. He would explain to them about Jesus and how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. 
But apparently, there was no synagogue in Philippi. And so instead, they go outside the city gates and they go down to a river. They're expecting to find a group there, and they do. They come across this group of women who have gathered to pray. And we're introduced to one of these women. Her name is Lydia. We meet her. Look at verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. Maybe you remember that from our Revelation series, the the city of Thyatira. Lydia was from there, and she was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Now, we learn a number of things about Lydia right off the bat. Firstly, she was well-traveled. She's from Thyatira in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, but she does business in Macedonia. She's cultured. She's well-traveled. She's also a businesswoman. She was a dealer in purple cloth. She had her own business selling purple cloth. And what this means is that more than likely, she was also probably very wealthy. You see, the process to dye purple cloth in that day was very expensive. Only wealthy people could afford to buy purple. So these clothes that Lydia is selling, they're not from Kmart or Target or something like that. They're Gucci, they're Chanel. She's a wealthy woman selling to wealthy people. We actually learn later on that she had a household. She had her own house. She was a homeowner, and she could invite others into it. She was a woman of means, wealthy, well-traveled, cultured woman. But that's not all we're told about Lydia. She was also, we're told there, a worshiper of God. Now, this doesn't mean that she was a Christian. It means that she was a Gentile, a non-Jew, but she was drawn to the Jewish God. She'd begun to read the Old Testament scriptures. She'd begun to seek after this God. She'd begun even to pray to him. And so Lydia was like some people in our day. She was rich. She was successful. She was savvy. But she was hungry for something more. She was looking for something deeper. She was looking for for hope and purpose and meaning. And I can imagine that the Apostle Paul explained to her and he said, this is a, a good desire to want to know God, to search after God. And the good news is that God has made himself known to us in Jesus, that the way to the Father is through the Son, the one who died on the cross for your sin, the one who rose again to give you life. This is the one you're looking for. This is the one that you need. And what happened? Look at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia puts her trust in Jesus. And and notice how this happens. This this small phrase is incredibly important. It kind of shows us how God works in the world, how God saves people and brings them into his family. There's three clauses in this phrase, and all of them are important. I mean, firstly, how, how does God work in the world? Well, we see that. The Lord opened her heart. Salvation begins with God's initiative, not our cleverness, not our goodness, but God's grace to us. God opening our eyes to see him. God softening our hearts to trust him. And the fact is, we need God to do this for us, because we wouldn't come to him otherwise. Tim Keller kind of compares it to an intervention. You know, when when someone is addicted to drugs or alcohol, they usually can't see how bad off they are. They usually can't see how enslaved they are. They need someone to intervene. They need someone to break through. They they need someone who loves them enough to say, you're an addict. You need help. 
And Keller says that we have the same problem spiritually. We can't see how bad we are. We can't see how enslaved we are. We need an intervention. And this is what God does. He breaks through. He intervenes. He opens our eyes so that we can see ourselves clearly. And more importantly, so that we can see him and respond to him. That that leads us to the second part of this phrase. The Lord opened her heart to respond. Like all of us, Lydia had a response to make. She had to admit, I am sinful. I need saving. I need to put my trust in Jesus. And and this is the response that, that Lydia makes. Now the question is, how did she know to make that response? Leads us to the third part of the phrase. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You see, Lydia didn't make this response on her own. She's not sitting by the river daydreaming when she suddenly thinks, I think I need to trust in Jesus. She's listening to Paul's message. God opens her heart and she responds in faith. And this is how God works in the world. God uses people to save people. Now, it's not up to us to do the saving. Salvation is God's responsibility. The results are up to him, not us. But it's our responsibility to do the sharing, to get the word out. We share the message, God softens hearts and people respond. This is how God works in the world. And this is what we see in the story of Lydia. The successful, savvy businesswoman responds to the gospel. Now that word respond in verse 14 is a really strong word. It's used in another part of the Bible to describe uh, being addicted to wine. You see, Lydia didn't just kind of agree with the gospel. She didn't just believe it. She was captured by it. She was intoxicated by it. She was moved by it. She found it to be compelling and beautiful. This successful woman who sold beautiful clothes to beautiful people, she now found the beauty that her heart was longing for. And she found it in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is the first conversion story. This is the first convert in Europe, the successful businesswoman. But the next story takes us in a new dramatic direction. We go from from the wealthy and the successful to the enslaved and the exploited. And this leads us to the second story, the anonymous slave girl. We meet this poor girl in verse 16. Look at what we read there. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, the, the place where they met Lydia, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, what do we know about this slave girl? Basically, she is the opposite of Lydia. Firstly, she is unnamed. Secondly, she is young, probably in her mid-teens. Thirdly, she is a slave. She's the property of her owners, and she is exploited by her owners. Because fourthly, she is oppressed by a demonic spirit. Literally, the the Greek in which the the New Testament was originally written, it it literally says she had the spirit of Python. Now, they don't translate it that way in English because it would just totally confuse us modern English readers. But ancient readers would have understood what this meant, referring to a specific group of people that that were very troubled. They acted very bizarrely. They spoke very wildly. But they also had this ability to have some insight into the future. 
They were able to make predictions about the future. And the special ability of this young girl is exploited by her owners. They use her to make money for themselves. And so this is kind of the terrible situation that this girl is in. And the question is, how is the gospel going to come to her? How is the message of Jesus going to break through for her? I mean, she's not going to a prayer meeting anytime soon, probably. And even if she wanted to, she probably didn't have the freedom to do it. See, she needs something a little bit different to Lydia. She needs the same message. She needs the same gospel. But it it needs to come to her in a different way. And this is what we see happen next. After Paul and his companions kind of run into this girl, we read in verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, why would a demon be engaging in evangelism? Why would a demon kind of be promoting Paul's ministry? The truth is, it's not exactly clear. Maybe it was to draw attention to them so that they would kind of get into trouble with the the Roman authorities. Or maybe, as John Stott suggests, it was to discredit the gospel by associating it with the occult. You know, maybe people would take Paul's message less seriously if they thought it was associated with this demonized young girl. You know, kind of like a, a dentist that maybe advertised Coke out the front of their practice. Probably not going to go to that dentist. Now, whatever the case may be, this goes on for a number of days. Look at verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, this is a really interesting encounter, isn't it? It's one of those places in the Bible where I'm reminded that it's not made up. If you were writing myth or legend, or if you're trying to promote the Christian faith, you wouldn't have the Apostle Paul look like this. He's one of the greatest leaders in the church, but he kind of looks a bit terrible here, doesn't he? First of all, I mean, it it took him days to help this young girl. I don't know why he, he didn't help her sooner. Secondly, when he did eventually help her, it wasn't out of compassion, but irritation. It, you know, it doesn't say, Paul, so full of compassion for this poor young girl, helped her out. No, he just got sick of the yelling. And if you're a parent of young kids, you, I mean, you probably get it. Paul doesn't look so good here. So why is it written down this way? Well, it's written down this way, firstly, because Paul was not perfect. There's only one person that's perfect. The Lord Jesus. Paul didn't always get it right. We don't always get it right. But God used Paul and God can use us. Secondly, it was written down this way probably because this is the way it happened. I mean, I can imagine when Luke is writing this down, Paul's looking over his shoulder and saying, can't you leave that bit out? That's going to be in there forever. Luke's, sorry, man. That's the way it happens. Now, whatever the case may be, the the main thing is that in the end, this young girl is set free from her spiritual slavery. And although Luke doesn't refer explicitly to her conversion or her baptism, it would seem that this young girl became a Christian, that she became part of the church in Philippi, the slave girl and the successful businesswoman. Because the gospel is good news for rich and poor, for comfortable and crushed. 
But the church in Philippi has at least one more member to be added. And it leads us to our third and final story, which is the battle-hardened jailer. You know, after Paul cast out this demon and set this girl free, you can imagine there would have been a lot of joy among their company. Everyone would have been excited and overwhelmed. Well, everyone except for her owners. Because when the demons left this girl, so too did their prophets. And when they find out what has happened, they are enraged at Paul and his companions and they stir up the crowds against them. They drag them before the magistrates and the magistrates have them severely flogged and then thrown into prison. And it's here that we meet the Roman jailer. Look at verse 23. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, what do we know about this jailer? Well, like most Roman jailers at the time, he was probably a retired Roman soldier. Now, remember, the Roman army was not known for the big smiles and the warm cuddles that they gave out. They were a brutal war machine. And so this man was a battle-hardened veteran, rough, tough, uncompromising. And we see this in the way that he treats Paul and Silas. He puts them into the inner cell of the prison. This is usually the the lowest part of the prison. It was dark and dank and disgusting. All of the the fecal matter would flow down into that area. And remember, they'd just been flogged. They are bruised and broken and bleeding. This doesn't stop the jailer from putting their feet in the stocks, which means they can't get comfortable. They can't tend their wounds. This is a miserable situation. But the jailer doesn't seem to care. In fact, he probably enjoyed it. And the question is, how is the gospel, the message about Jesus, going to come to this jailer? He's not going to a prayer meeting anytime soon. He's not about to have a a demon cast out of him. He is totally uninterested and unconcerned about Jesus. How is the gospel going to break through for him? Well, if Lydia needed an explanation of the gospel... If the slave girl needed an experience of the gospel, then this Roman jailer needs to see the effects of the gospel. He needs to see the difference that it makes in the lives of those who believe it. And this is what he sees in the example of Paul and Silas in the prison. First of all, he sees their peace in the face of their suffering. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, let me be honest. If I'm in that situation, I'm probably complaining. (laughs) Maybe you would be too. I might even be upset with God. God, you you sent me to preach the message. You know, people are being saved. And now we're, we're beaten up and we're in jail. But Paul and Silas are praising God. They're singing hymns to God. What an incredible response. And apparently the other prisoners thought so as well because they're listening to this. The the jailer's listening to this. He sees their peace in the face of their suffering. But secondly, he also saw their kindness in the face of his cruelty. Look at what happens next, verses 26 and 27. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. 
At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer, in in a fairly big understatement, woke up. You know, there's this earthquake that rocks the prison. Doors come off their hinges, bolts come out of the wall, chains come loose, and the prisoners are free for all intents and purposes. Now, when the jailer wakes up and sees the doors are opened, he pulls out his sword to kill himself. Why? Well, in the Roman prison system, if a jailer lost his prisoners, if they escaped on his watch, he paid for it with his life. He was a dead man walking. But before he can do the deed, Paul uh, kind of sees this and and he calls out. He says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Now, now Paul and Silas, they they could have just left. They were innocent. They'd done nothing wrong. They'd been mistreated by this jailer. He had been unkind to them. He had not helped them in any way. But Paul helps him. He's kind to him. Doesn't repay evil with evil, but overcomes evil with good. He responds to cruelty with kindness, and it, it leaves the jailer in awe. He doesn't understand it. He sees that Paul and Silas have something that he doesn't have. They have a power that he doesn't possess. For all of his strength and his brawn and his experience, they have an inner strength that he lacks. And and it makes him want to get to to know the God that they were singing to. So he comes before them and and he asks them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have relationship with this God that you've been talking about and singing about? Now notice the question that he asks, what must I do to be saved? He's a soldier. He's a man of action. He assumes if if I'm going to be made right with God, there's something I've got to do. Some way I've got to earn it. It's the, the default assumption of the human heart, and it's what makes the message of Jesus so amazing. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. I mean, what, what do you need to do to be saved? It's an important question. Will you trust in the one who has done it for you? The one who has died in your place for your sin on the cross. It's what they say to him. Verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is what happens, that the jailer puts his faith in Jesus. His life is changed forever. He, He washes the wounds of Paul and Silas. You see, when you become a Christian, it changes the way you act and immediately He begins to care for these men. He washes their wounds. And then he is washed by Paul and Silas. He's baptized. He and his household. They share a meal together. He's overcome with great joy. And he becomes part of the Philippian church. The successful businesswoman, the anonymous slave girl, and the battle-hardened jailer. Three very different people who all come to faith in Jesus. And the question is, what can we learn from this? What can this teach us? Why is this in the Bible? Well, the very first lesson, and it's a really important one, is that the gospel, the message of Jesus, is for everybody. I mean, these people are about as different as you can get. They were different ethnically. Lydia was Asian. The slave girl was a Greek. The jailer was a Roman. They were different economically. Lydia was in the top tax bracket. The slave girl had no tax bracket. And and the jailer was middle class. They were different spiritually. Lydia was spiritually open. The slave girl was spiritually oppressed. And the jailer could not care less. They were different psychologically. Lydia was, was, was gentle and open and inquisitive. The, the, the slave girl was troubled. 
And the Roman jailer was brutal. They were about as different as they could be in every way, and yet all are changed by the same gospel, the same message, the same Jesus. And the point is this, there is no Christian type. Christianity is not just for liberal voters or labor voters. It's not just for moral people or immoral people. It's for all people. It's for anyone. It's for everyone. You see, some people will say, Christianity, you know, it's not for me. It's not my thing. That's like saying oxygen is not my thing. It's for everybody. And if it's not your thing, you're dead. Because we all have been created. We all have the same origin, created by God. We all have the same problem, sin, rebellion against God. And we all have the same solution, Christ, his death in our place on the cross. The gospel is for everybody, even that person in your life that you're tempted to think they'll never become a Christian. If God can save a rich businesswoman, an anonymous slave girl, and a battle-hardened jailer, he can save your friend, your spouse, your, your parent, your child, your sibling, your colleague. So don't give up. Keep loving, keep praying, keep sharing because the gospel is for everybody. Second lesson is this. The gospel brings everybody together. You know, there was no other group in Philippi quite like this church. There was no other group with such different people in the one group. In fact, there was a Jewish prayer which was common around that time. Uh, Apparently, Jewish men would pray this prayer in the morning. Here's how it goes. I warn you, it's not exactly politically correct. It says, Oh Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Jewish men would pray this prayer. They felt superior to these three groups of people. Now look who gets saved first in Philippi. Look who God adds first to the church in Philippi. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. In fact, I hope you've noticed the important role of women in the Christian movement. When Paul shows up at that river in Philippi and he sees the group of women praying, he doesn't say, oh, no, where's the men? Let's go find some men. We can't get started with, with just you know, a group of women. He shares the gospel with these women. And they play a key role in the church. Many people believe that Lydia's house becomes the base for this church in Philippi. It would have been quite shocking in that day. Now, how much clearer could the Bible be that in the church, no one is more important than anyone else? No one matters more than anyone else. doesn't matter what you have. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter where you've come from, the color of your skin, the size of your bank account. What matters is Christ. We're one in him. He brings us together. Because the gospel is for everybody, and the gospel brings everybody together. And the question is, do we believe this? Are we the type of church where a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a jailer can follow Jesus alongside one another? Are we open to those who are not like us? Are we willing to reach out to those who are not like us? Do we truly believe the gospel is for everybody? Let's pursue this vision together. Let's not come late to church and rush home early. Let's reach out to those who are standing on their own. Let's include those who we haven't met yet. 
Let's pray for those who are not here yet. Let's open our hearts and our lives to those who are far from Christ. And what about you? Maybe someone's invited you to church this morning. Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia. He was powerful enough for the slave girl. And he was practical enough for the jailer. And he has what you need as well. And the question is, will you come to him? Will you trust him? The message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the person of Jesus is for everybody. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that the good news of Jesus is not for the put together and the powerful and the influential, but it is for everybody. No matter where we've come from, no matter what we've done, there is space at the foot of the cross. And so it help us to be a church that lives out this vision. Help us to be a place where all people and more people can find the freedom and the hope and the life that is in Jesus. Lord, if, this, if some of us have never responded to this message, Lord, we ask that you would open hearts and open eyes so that we might see ourselves and more importantly, see you in all your grace, in all your goodness, and in all your mercy. So Lord, please fill us, change us, use us for the good of more people and for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.